This morning's word is from Genesis 45, starting with verse 16 through chapter 46, verse 30. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart was numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that the Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. 
the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimran, the sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hegah, Shuni, Esban, Ari, Erodai, and Erelai. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Michael. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Pupam, and Ard. These are, the sons, these are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then... Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Some of you are very thankful you were not named Mupim and Hoopim. <laughs> I say that with gratitude that the Lord we serve does have a sense of humor. There are many places in the Bible where he says things that are quite ironic or funny and He is well aware that in our culture, woe to the dad who names his sons Mupim and Hupim. (laughs) I don't recommend. Lord, I pray you would help me now. So many thoughts. So much in this passage that begs for application. We've loved our time in Genesis, Lord. Uh, Every part of your word is sweet, and yet when we get to particular books where you are opening our eyes in ways that are new, it's so humbling. Thank you that we never reach a point in our life where we've mastered this book because we cannot contain your greatness in the frailty of our little minds. 
And so we ask right now, King Jesus, that you would shatter our small notions of you. And that you would loom large and great and strong and mighty. Not because we make you such, but for the simple reason that that is who you are. And have always been and always will be. Show us your glory. Amen. Well, some of you know, uh, over the last uh, two weeks, my wife and I had the privilege of vacationing in, an, in a place that we had dreamed of visiting for a long time, uh, and that would be New Zealand, specifically the Southern Alps. Uh, we almost went there on our honeymoon, but wiser voices prevailed and said, you would do well to not go somewhere where you feel pressure to see lots of other things besides your spouse. So I'm thankful we waited and we had a, a wonderful time, although it is a very long flight. <laughs> I will give you that. The, the natural scenery was pretty stunning. Uh, the food and wine were excellent. The country excels in hospitality. Almost anybody you talk to is very welcoming. And on multiple levels, visiting a place like that is to encounter the best of what this world has to offer. There were a lot of people there uh, doing the same thing we were, eager uh, to check New Zealand off their bucket list. But I must tell you something, friends, and and this has grown on me since I, I came back. New Zealand was strangely dissatisfied. And there was one night near the top of uh, Luxmore Mountain as I rested my, my tired feet and I, I watched the sun set on the Southern Alps that I had this thought. None of this around me can satisfy my soul. So, so don't get me wrong. Um, I am so thankful we took the trip. I mean, in some ways it doesn't matter where you go, right? Two weeks with your wife is a, a priceless gift. But that night... And even since then, my, my heart has been gripped by the singular reality that all the beauty that I saw, all the majesty that confronted me, everything around me, it was all designed to point back to him. To, to direct the, the thoughts of my mind and, and the affections of my heart uh, back to the one who created it all, right? Who who sustains it all, and, and who even that night, as I looked out over the Southern Alps, was just giving me the faintest whisper of his all-satisfying glory through it all. 
And I think, speaking from personal experience, that we really quickly believe the lie that if we only had the vacation of our dreams, right, or the home of our dreams, or the job of our dreams, or the spouse of our dreams, well, then we would be happy. But friend, the reality is you were made for more than this. You weren't created for the world. You were created to know God and enjoy him forever. And it's through relationship with God and God alone, friend, that your soul can be truly satisfied. That's why Psalm 84 verse 10 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It includes New Zealand, by the way. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, I hope as I say that, that resonates as true in your heart. You know that and, and you're fighting to live accordingly. This world is not our home. We're exiles. We're sojourners. We're, we're longing to be with the Lord, longing to be in heaven, but called for a little while to live in this present world. And in that sense, in many ways, we're just like Jacob. Because what was Jacob's true home? It was Canaan, Right? Canaan was the land God promised to give him and his descendants. And and yet for a time, the Lord called Jacob and his descendants to go and sojourn where? In Egypt. And so this this section in Genesis 45.16 to 46.30, it's all about how God brought Jacob and his family to Egypt, which I would argue is what makes this section in Genesis so incredibly helpful. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because... I think the way God led and cared for Jacob and his family during their transition into exile, it parallels the way that God leads and cares for us during the days of our exile in this world. There's a mirror between these two things. And I would argue that our exile is no less intentional than Jacob's. It's all part of God's plan to renew his image in us. What does the Apostle Peter say in 2 Peter 1.3? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. More like God, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. If you've ever found yourself wondering, Lord, why don't you just take us all home to be with you? Like now, or like yesterday. It's because God's on a mission, friend. He's doing something with the days of our sojourning. He's he's doing something with our time of exile. (coughs) And his plan is quite simple. It's to make us more like himself. 
And that message, it's not unique to Second Peter. It's repeated over and over again throughout the entire Bible. Your exile has a point. Your sojourn has a goal. And the message of these two chapters, put very simply, I believe, is this. That we sojourn in this world. We live out our days of exile through faith and the power and promises of God. It's what Jacob and his family needed to hear as they were entering Egypt. It's, it's what the original recipients of this book, remember this book didn't just appear in thin air, it was given to the people of Israel, as best we can tell, right on the cusp of them entering Canaan. So right before they went back home. And it's exactly what we need to hear today in the midst of our own exile. Because in these verses, the Lord, what, what does he do? He comforts us and he strengthens us with a vivid demonstration of his power and a clear declaration of his promise. So we're going to look at both of those things. First, God's power, and then his promise. So let's start with God's power. Point number one, what do I mean by that? Namely, God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. And I'm going to give you three exhibits in these verses where we see that. Exhibit A, making unexpected provision. If you're not familiar with the background, maybe you've just jumped into our series, or it's first, your first time at Kingsway, this chapter opens with one of the most poignant moments of family reconciliation in the entire Bible. At least I would argue that. So, compelled by famine, you have a group of Jacob's sons who travel from Canaan to Egypt to buy grain because they don't have grain back home only to discover that this young Egyptian ruler before them, who is second in authority only to Pharaoh, who's kind of the top dog in Egypt, this second-in-command young ruler is none other than Joseph, who happens to be the younger brother that they sold into slavery some 20 years earlier. And in the providence of God, Joseph rose from the prison to the palace, He oversaw the storage of abundant grain during seven years of plenty and is now responsible for feeding the Egyptians as well as the visitors from the surrounding lands during seven years of famine. And when the brothers first encounter Joseph, they are, look at verse 4, chapter 45, dismayed at his presence. I would say so. But then Joseph invites them to approach him And if you look at verse 5, still reviewing here, in in what is arguably a stunning demonstration of faith working through love, he says this, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And so before too long, everybody's crying and everybody's hugging each other. And and it really is a beautiful example, is it not? Of the kind of reconciliation between men that can only grow in the soil of an abiding trust in the providence of God. And Pharaoh soon hears that this has happened, right? He hears Joseph's brothers have come. 
He's thrilled. I mean, Joseph's pretty much just single-handedly saved the entire land of Egypt. He ought to be thrilled. So he sends wagons back to Canaan to transport all of Jacob's uh, family, wives, children, aging father to Egypt. And he explicitly says, don't bother with transporting all your possessions. Look at verse 20, chapter 45. Pharaoh says, have no concern for your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Now, I think on the heels of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers, it's really easy to miss the significance of Pharaoh's invitation here. But I want you for just a minute, friend, to imagine you're Jacob. So put yourself in Jacob's shoes. A regional famine has just severely crimped your ability to feed your extended family. And that is not a small deal when it numbers some 70 people, not including your servants and all your livestock and flocks. So, so what do you think, again, imagine you're Jacob, what do you think he envisioned as he looked to the future? If you were in Jacob's shoes, and that was your reality, that, that was the stress as the provider of the household that you were under, what would you see as you look in the future? Starvation? Poverty? Maybe the best you could come up with was repeated trips to Egypt and all the drama that that seemed to, go, to bring along for your family. Here's what I bet he never imagined. That he would receive a personal invitation from Pharaoh in Egypt to come and bring all his people and all his stuff to live in the best of the land of Egypt on Pharaoh's dime. I don't think I would have thought of that. I don't think Jacob dreamed of that. I mean, that's not a meager provision. You, you realize that, I hope. That, that's not a enough-to-get-by provision, okay? That, that's a lavish, abundant provision for Jacob and his family from a most surprising source. Who's the surprising source? The pagan king of Egypt. Who would have dreamed of that? Do you know what unbelief does to God? It puts God in a box. So unbelief says, this is what seems likely. Maybe this is what's happened before. So this is all that can happen again right? It treats the world as a closed system. Maybe God created it. Maybe he wound it up, but he's pretty much just left everything alone since then. What's happened before will happen again, and nothing can happen again that hasn't happened before. Now, to the secular mind, what I just described is exceedingly respected, and wise. Right? So religious beliefs are okay, but, but everything in moderation. Un unbelief even seems smart. Sometimes as Christians, we even start thinking like that. Why? Because the greater your expectations of God, right, the greater your risk of disappointment. You expect a little from God, 
And when you get little from God, you have less of an issue with God. So sometimes we choose unbelief because it seems wise and circumspect in the secular world we live in. Sometimes we choose unbelief because we're trying to protect ourselves from disappointment. It seems so plausible. It seems so understandable except for one little problem. What's that? Well, only the minor inconvenience that that sort of view of the world and and God's activity in it, or rather the lack thereof, is directly contradicted by the entire testimony of God's words and acts through the entire Bible. To give just one example, consider Ephesians 3.20. Listen to this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know what I'm grateful for, Kingsway? I am exceedingly grateful that King Jesus never lowers himself to the level of our expectations. Are you grateful for that? He delights to shatter our expectations. Again and again and again. 1 Corinthians 2.9 No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man, your heart, friend, imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Why is that? Psalm 145 verse 3 tells us why. Because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So here's what that means, okay? When it comes to seeing unexpected provision from a surprising source, it means, friend, that if your expectations of God are informed by the word of God, then your expectations of God cannot be too high. So I ask you, be honest. Where in your life have you put God in a little tiny box? Where in the quiet of your heart have you concluded that his ability to provide for you is lacking? We serve a God who delights to provide all that his children need from the most surprising sources, pagan kings included. And when I was away, I had a significant illustration of this that I wanted to share with you. This is the problem with singing your heart out before you preach. You don't have a voice. There was a night in New Zealand at a a restaurant we visited that served a buffet of really good Mediterranean food. And, and after filling our plates and, and walking up to the register to pay, I was dismayed to learn that the credit card machine wasn't working. Yeah. And I didn't have a single dollar of New Zealand cash on me, so I had no idea what to do. You know, it's one of those, you're in a foreign country, you still want to provide for your wife, both of you are absolutely starving, you're, you're kicking yourself for your lack of planning, I should have gone to the ATM earlier. And at that very moment, another American in line, whom I had never met before, overheard our dilemma, 
and, and just stepped up and said, hey, my friend and I were talking and we'd like to buy your dinner. It's like, I'm Matthew. <laughs> you know? What do you do? I, I was floored. And after my momentary panic kind of subsided, I, I sat down and I thought, Lord, that is just like you. That's just like you. I don't, I don't deserve that kind of kindness. Why, oh why, do I ever doubt your ability to provide? Not, not just in like the big situations, right? Sometimes those are easier because we see them coming. It's like, oh, oh I, I got to get my trust in God gear on for this bad, but you know. But even in the little situations, God didn't stop demonstrating his power by bringing blessing from a surprising source for Jacob and his family. He did that, but he keeps going. Exhibit B, he demonstrates his power by repaying evil with good. He brings blessing from a surprising source. Doesn't stop there. He repays evil with good. So think about this. How did Joseph's brothers humiliate him 20 years earlier. What did they do? Well, they they stripped him of a costly robe, right? And they threw him into a pit. And then they had the audacity to take his costly robe and smear it with goat's blood and take it back to Jacob and say, so sad, so sorry, not really. Joseph's been killed. His robe, his clothing, symbolized all that they had stolen from him. Look at verse 21. Joseph lavishes costly gifts on his brothers and his father, including 300 shekels of silver for Benjamin. But notice verse 22, what he specifically gives to each one of them. What's that, friend? It's a change of clothes. You realize that's, that's not just a, a powerful demonstration of forgiveness on Joseph's part. I hope that that was a, a powerful demonstration on the Lord's part of his commitment to repay his people's evil with good. That was a loud statement to his brother. And friend, the Lord is eager to do the same for you today. He's he's a just God who who will not let the guilty go unpunished. He is also a merciful God who has borne the guilt of our sin on the cross, absorbing in his body the full weight of divine judgment in the stead of all who turn from sin and trust him for salvation. If you are looking for the single best demonstration of God's commitment to repay our evil with good, look to the cross of Christ. Because it's there that God screams and shouts of his commitment that where sin is many, his mercy is more. Exhibit B, repaying evil with good. Exhibit C, bringing life out of death. All of these point to God's power. The the third and final evidence is found in verses 25 to 28, where the Lord brings life out of death. So after returning to Jacob and and Cain and their father, 
Joseph's brothers tell him. What do they say? Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now look at verse 26. What happens to Jacob? And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Would you? Again, put yourself in Jacob's shoes. 20 years. Hey, Dad, by the way, Joseph's alive. Would you believe that the son you had given up for dead 20 years earlier was, was actually alive? I don't think so. It's not surprising it took, it took Jacob a while. And, and only after hearing the words that Joseph had spoken and the wagons that he had sent did, they believe the, did he believe the unbelievable. Look at verse 28. And Israel said, Jacob said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now think about this very carefully. What does the fact that God functionally brought Jacob's beloved son back from the dead tell us about the power of God? What does the fact that God literally brought his own beloved son back from the dead on Easter Sunday tell us? What tells us, friend, that nothing is too hard for the Lord? Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Nothing is on his that's impossible list. Everything that is consistent with the absolute purity of his eternal character is always on the possible list because he's God. Nothing's too hard. Nothing's too difficult. So, has your heart been shattered like Jacob? Heartbroken by sin in your own family? Well, friend, if that's you, hear this. God is able to bring life out of death. Are you discouraged by the the sinful attitudes or behaviors in your life that that just seemed so slow to change after years of trying to follow Jesus? What do you need to hear? God is able to bring life out of death. Does it seem in the natural that your wayward son or daughter who is so hardened to the things of God, could ever make Jesus their treasure. What do you need to believe? God is able to bring life out of death, right? The the Lord delights to surprise us by doing what we would scarcely dare to believe, even if someone told us. You realize that, right? That's, that's the kind of God he is. So he provides blessing from unexpected sources. He repays our evil with good. And he brings life out of death. Three exhibits of the power of God that together say what? God is able to do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. That's the point. But we don't just trust his power. We trust his promises. Let's look at the second half of this. Point number two God's promise. Best way to summarize this, you, my friend, have better reasons for faith than fear. Better reasons for faith than fear. So, the end of Genesis 45 features God's power. The first part of Genesis 46 focuses on his promises. So look at verse 2. We're in chapter 46 now. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, 
Now, why would God do that? Why, why call him Jacob when back in Genesis 35, he had already renamed him Israel? God doesn't forget names. There's a point. The Lord calls him Jacob because he's addressing the man's weakness. He's speaking into his frailty. He's he's addressing what verse 3 reveals, namely an entirely understandable anxiety about what? Going down to Egypt. He's, He's trembling at the prospect of that even as his heart as a dad longs to go down there. Now, now you can hear that. You can read that thing. Jacob, what's the big deal? Like, you just heard Joseph is alive, so get your butt down to Egypt. I mean, come on. You know, get a fast camel. Well, I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Why he's riddled with anxiety. It's because in Genesis 35, God didn't promise to give Jacob the land of Egypt. He promised to give Jacob the land of Canaan. And you know what happened to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, the last time he went down to Egypt? He almost lost his wife. And you know what God specifically told his dad, Isaac, one day? What did he say? Chapter 26, Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. Guess what was going down in the land in that day for Isaac? Another famine. And so the end of chapter 45 indicates Jacob really wants to go, but the beginning of 46 reminds us he's really reluctant and rightly so. Now, lest you get confused with all this, no, is God like contradicting himself? Listen carefully, okay? The issue ultimately isn't whether Egypt is good or bad. What's the ultimate issue? What does God say? It's the word of God. The issue is whether going to Egypt is an act of obedience or disobedience to the word of God. That's the key question. So, how does the Lord respond? This is really important, right? How does the Lord respond to us in the midst of all our own anxieties and fears and and tremblings and uncertainties about navigating our life in exile. About the years of our sojourn in this world that is not our home until we get home to be with him. Well, the Lord does three things for Jacob, and he wants to do the same for us today, friend. First, listen, he asserts his divine identity. He asserts his divine identity. In other words, he tells Jacob, that the most important reality on the table here, buddy, is not your weakness, it's my divine identity and power. Look at verse 3, chapter 46. What does he say? I am God. That's like Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God. And that was the Lord's way of saying that, that our perspective, your perspective, friend, on life as an exile. Your exile in this world needs to be informed first and foremost by what? Not your circumstances, but by your creator. Second, the Lord affirms his past faithfulness. Look at verse 3 again. What's he say to Jacob? I am God. 
the God of your father. It's not a throwaway line. It's not like, hi, I'm God, the God of somebody's father, and I just have to say that stuff to get to the point. No. No, the fact that Jacob offers sacrifices to the God of his father, and the Lord immediately identifies himself as the God of his father, is the Lord's way of saying, Jacob, I'm the God whom you're worshiping. And furthermore, I haven't just been faithful to you, pal. I have been faithful to you. I've also been faithful to those who have come before you. In other words, I'm not Johnny come lately. I've I've made covenant promises to your father Isaac, no less than I made covenant promises to you. And I have kept my covenant promises to Isaac, listen, no less than I will keep my covenant promises to you. I'm not a figment of your imagination, Jacob. I'm not a religious idea that that captured your fancy. I'm, I'm the Lord of history. That's what he's saying. And I've been working and moving in your own family's history long before you were born. But what's the point? If you're a Christian, you're not writing your own story. You're part of God's story. So he affirms his past faithfulness. Third, the Lord specifically tells Egypt, look back at verse 3, tells Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. It's okay this time, buddy. Don't be afraid to go. But but here's what I want you to see, friend. This is so important. The Lord never in Scripture says, just trust me. He never says that. Just trust me. He gives Jacob reasons to not be afraid. Do you realize that? If somebody ever comes up to you and says, you know what you need to do right now? You just need to trust God. I give you full permission as your pastor right now to humbly and kindly and graciously look them back in the eye and quietly and humbly and graciously say, tell me why. Because God never says, just trust me. He gives reasons, and there are four of them here that I want to conclude with. Four reasons to not be afraid in your life as an exile, in your life as a sojourner. And again, remember, there's a mirror. So the way God comforts Jacob as he's entering the years of his exile in Egypt reflects the same way God comforts and leads us during the years of our exile in the world. So what does the Lord say? Four promises. Here we go. Promise one, God's unstoppable purpose. Look back at verse 3. What's he say to Jacob? For there in Egypt, I will make you into a great nation. A great nation. Now, if you've been reading through Genesis, you know that promise to make his descendants into a great nation isn't new. Right? The Lord covenanted to do as much back with his grandfather Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 too. What is new here is his commitment to accomplish that purpose, not just in Canaan, but also in Egypt. Now, lest we be thrown off by verses 8 to 27, where you start getting all these names and you just think, oh boy, here we go again. Lord bless the scripture reader, right? There's a point to that genealogy. And here it is. The point is that God's promise to Jacob, I will make you into a great nation in verse 3, was a promise he was already fulfilling. 
Why? Why do I say that? Not just because there's a lot of names, but because from one man, God raised up a company of 70. That, that's not an arbitrary number. Okay, that, that's a symbolic number. And no matter how you reconcile the differences between 70 and 66, if that's your thing, we can talk later. The fact that 70 entered Egypt signifies the, the growing fullness of the Israelites as a people even before they commenced the years of their exile. So in other words, the Lord was saying, I am already well on my way to fulfilling the purpose that I made, the promise I made to Abraham, that I was going to take you and your wife. You guys couldn't even have a kid, and I'm going to make you a great nation. So what's the application? I think it's simple. Our time in this world isn't a waste. It's not like God had a new heavens and a new earth construction timeline. But he had to deal with a lot of rain and a labor shortage. And so we just need to hold on down here a little longer. No. No, the the Lord is using the years of our exile, using our time in this world, Christian, to mature your character, to, to make you great in the kingdom of God. By doing what? By teaching you to love and serve the people around you as a reflection of your love and service to the Lord. So our years on earth are not like flying in a holding pattern above the Newark airport, which I did for way too long last week. They might be turbulent, but they're not in vain. James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Translation, God had an unstoppable purpose in bringing Jacob and his family into exile. God has an unstoppable purpose in leading us through exile in this world. Promise two, God's continual presence. So think about this. Notice God didn't tell Jacob, just relax, man. I've I've got this. He speaks gently with the aging man. He he speaks directly to the point of his need. Verse 4, look there, chapter 46. Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Let me just stop and think about that for a second. The God of the universe who just told Jacob, his people, it's okay to go there. It's not like he he radioed that in from headquarters. You know, this is God, over. Yes, God, this is Jacob. You're permitted to go to Egypt, over. 10-4, God. What what does he say? Jacob, I'm not staying in HQ. I'm going to go into exile with you. I'm going to give you the gift of my presence. You're not going to be alone. We're in this together. What's the application from that? Well, if you're a Christian friend, you praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's what you do. So when we sing in a couple minutes, he will hold me fast. We sing that not because it's some kind of spiritual desire or psychotic hope, 
but because that's a spiritual reality for all those in whom the third person of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit of God, has taken up residence. He's right now holding you fast. He's with you. No matter, no matter where you sojourn in this world, in obedience to his word, the Lord is with you. Promise three, God's sure deliverance. His sure deliverance. Look at verse four. What does he say to Jacob? I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. You ever had a friend who's like, hey man, sorry life is so hard, like, man, I just want you to know I'm with you. And you think, oh, thanks, but like, could you fix my life? <laughs> could, could you help? It's exceedingly comforting to know that the Lord goes with us down to Egypt, right? He goes with us into exile, but he's not a passive friend. He's a present savior, Christian. So take heart. As he says to Jacob, he says to you, I'm going to bring you home. And he did that for Jacob. Not, not just physically, when Joseph returned to bury his father in Canaan, but in a spiritual sense and in a physical sense, one day through the Exodus, all of his descendants were brought back to Canaan. The Lord kept that promise. And Christian King Jesus will keep his promise to you to bring you home as well. And I think we really need to remember that as a growing number of us in this church face the realities of aging, if I can say it that way without stepping on any toes. The day of your physical death might be easy, it might be hard, but this is what you can know, friend, if you're in Christ. Jesus will bring you home. He's going to bring you home. Promise number four, we'll end with this. God's tender goodness. Remember, we started with exhibits of God's power. In chapter 46, we're looking at why we trust God's promises. What is he promising to us in our exile? He's promising tender goodness. Look back at verse four again. Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why not? Verse four, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What's that? Well, closing your eyes was a, a poetic expression for the approaching day of Jacob's physical death. So it was God's way of promising that at his moment of greatest weakness, the moment of his death, God would provide the human companionship that he had longed for for the last 20 years, right? So, so many of Jacob's years in exile, his years on this earth, were filled with relational strife and conflict. But what did God promise? Jacob, you're going to die in peace. Joseph's going to close your eyes. What is, what's the application? What's that tell us, friend? I think that reminds us that in our exile, God knows our need, God knows your need for human companionship. And sometimes we think he doesn't. And the logic that's not true goes like this, or something like this. I, I guess in theory, if Jesus is enough for me, then it won't matter if I'm divorced, or widowed, or abandoned, or single, or lonely. And so we start to feel guilty 
that we even long for forms of human companionship that we have yet to experience. Friend, if you're in that place, you need to hear this in God's words to Jacob. He certainly created you for relationship with himself. But he also created you for community with other people. And God knows that. And that's a desire he's eager to fulfill. That that doesn't mean he's going to fulfill it in every way we expect, right? So he hasn't promised to provide every human relationship that we wish he would provide. But what, what does his word assure us of here? That he knows our need for human companionship and he's eager to meet our need. He knows our need. He's eager to meet it. He doesn't say to Jacob, now Jacob, just get down to Egypt. My presence is enough for you. Well, well, God is enough for him. God is enough for you too. But God also knows our desire and longing for human companionship. And in his promise to the aging Jacob, we're confronted, friend, with an expression of God's tender goodness. Unstoppable purpose, continual presence, Sure deliverance, tender goodness. You you want some promises that will sustain you in the years of your exile? There you go. And ultimately, right, all of those promises culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who does what? He fulfills God's purpose for us. He ensures God's presence with us. He accomplishes God's deliverance in us. And he lavishes God's tender goodness on us. So if you want to grow in your ability to trust God's promises more fully, get to know Jesus. Now at the end of the road for Jacob, his faith became sight. He finally saw his long-lost son, Joseph. And he says, verse 30, chapter 46, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. I've seen, I've finally seen your face. If you're a follower of Jesus, friend, then today you can look forward to an even more joyful day of healing, a day your heavenly father has promised to bring to pass in your life where you see the face of your savior. You're gonna get to see him. Either either through your physical death or the return of Christ, you'll, you'll get to see Jesus. So like Jacob, one day your faith will become sight. Revelation 22, 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Until that day, God has called you to live in exile. He's called you to live in Egypt. You're sojourning. This isn't your home. And so what do you need to remember when you're living in a foreign land? You need to remember how to walk by faith in the power of God and in the promises of God. What does the power of God assure us of, church? That God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. What do the promises of God do for us? That we have better reasons for faith than fear. You remember those two things? No matter how long you're in Egypt, you're going to be just fine. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that we can trust your power. 
We thank you that we can trust your promises. And we are grateful that you have not said, hey, good luck with that exile thing. But even as you cared for Jacob and led Jacob, so you care for us and lead us. We ask you for faith, Lord, to increasingly in greater ways trust your power and trust your promises. Help us to sojourn well and not lose heart as exiles because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.